Okay, Father God, just echoing Dean's prayer, Father, we ask that, um, but Lord, as we listen and think about, Lord, your word this morning, that you would just bring us into that deeper intimacy where we're able to call you Abba, Father. Lord, we pray for the sins that we carry, Lord, the brokenness that, that often defines us, that you would just, Lord, over these next few weeks to begin to take those things off of us, to chisel them off, as it were, to free us, Lord, from those things that often bind us. And we think of that reading, Lord, that woman bound for 18 years. But, Lord, just one touch from your son was all she needed. Father, I pray that there will be a touch from your son this morning on all who need it. Lord, whether it be psychological or spiritual or emotional or even physical, we pray for healing, Lord, where it's needed, deep healing where it's needed, Father. And, Lord, just now as we look at your word together, we pray for your spirit of wisdom, Lord, to take words that are said and, and transform them, Lord, to what needs to be heard. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I should have said, sorry, the ladies' takeaway, which is the 7th of March, um, there's a sign-up sheet in the next hall, the other hall, the only hall. Um, so please sign up after, um, I'll say, take 10 seconds. My brain is not functioning at the same speed as my mouth. <clears throat> if you'd like to attend the women's takeaway, there is a sign-up sheet next door. Please sign up, and the details will be on there. Brilliant. Um, let me tell you a joke. That's always a good start, isn't it? A family had twin boys... Um, Twin boys, and they were, the only thing the same about them was the fact that they looked identical. They were identical twins, hence the reason they looked similar. And, uh, but they were completely different. That's where the difference ended. If one of the two boys felt too hot, the other one complained it was too cold. If one of the twin boys said it was too loud, the TV was too loud, the other would claim it wasn't loud enough. They were opposite in every way. One was an eternal optimist. The other was a doom and gloom pessimist. So just to see what would happen, on the twins' birthday, their father decided to initiate a little experiment. He filled his son, who was the pessimist's bedroom, with every toy imaginable and game and gift. The optimist's son, he filled his room with horse manure. In the morning, he passed the son who was a pessimist, and he found him sitting in the middle of all of his new toys, crying bitterly. He said, why on earth are you crying, son? He said, well, look, I've got so much stuff. All my friends will be jealous. And I'll have to read all the instructions before I can play anything. And I'll constantly need batteries. And eventually they'll all break. And then where will I be? And he pummeled the breast in despair. The optimist's room was next, and the father walked along to his other son, who was always in a good mood, an eternal optimist, and he found him dancing amongst the manure in his bedroom, throwing it around, lifting it up, cheering for joy. And he said, what on earth are you so happy about? And the son, who was an eternal optimist, said to him, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) So glad you laughed. (laughs) I wasn't very optimistic you'd laugh. Anyway. Let me ask you a question. What sort of person are you? When faced with a challenge, do you give up or do you relish to fight? When something's a bit difficult, do you think to yourself, I'm going to get through that and win? Yeah. Or do you think, too hard, I'll give up now and hide away? Do you hide or do you go forward? Do you fear change? When change is coming, do you say things like, oh, I don't really deal very well with change? Do you fear change or do you embrace it? Do you think, actually, this may be difficult for a time, but this could be the most important thing that's ever happened to me, and I'm going to embrace this change, and I'm going to see where God takes us, and we're not going to be over there where we normally are, we're going to be over there, and that could be really exciting. Are you that person, or are you the person that says, I don't like change? 
Don't come around here with any changes. That's not me. That's not my bag. Thanks very much. Are you, oh, let me ask you another question. See the glass? Is it half full or half empty? Do you look at all that you don't have in life? Are you thankful for what you do have? Are you thankful that you've got a glass in the first place? There are some people that would love to have that conversation. They've got absolutely nothing. Which one are you? What does the word optimist mean? Well, it comes, of course, from the Latin. We all know that. Um, I didn't Google it at all. It, will come, it comes from the Latin, which means optima, which means best outcome or belief in the greatest goal. That's what an optimist is. Someone who looks at a situation and says, I think this is going to work out well. I know that eventually it might be tough, but I know we're going to win, and I know it's going to be brilliant, the goal is going to be worth the fight. And what does a pessimist mean? Well, I started looking it up, and I thought, what's the point? <laughs> Dear. Anyway, well, which one are you? What sort of person are you? What is your heart? Is it lean negative or positive? Is it fight or flight? What is the one that does? I've got um, a couple of... Um, that's the other, actually, I should have put the first photo up, shouldn't I? Um, are you a fight or a flight kind of person, or freeze? There are only three options, aren't there? They say when you face difficult times, do you, do you fight it, do you run away, or do you just stand there and sort of panic? I think I'm the middle one. Uh, that's a mouse if you can't see it. Fight, freeze, or flight. Wrong choice. Because <laughs> he's decided to fight, by the way, and that, that's not worked out very well. But which one are you? I've got some other pictures. We've got um, a couple here. and um, So I want you to look at them as they come up. And uh, this is to see what sort of person you are. I'm not going to analyse you. You can analyse yourself, so that would be dangerous. So finish this sentence. If something can go wrong, just in your heads. Some of you are saying it normally does. Others of you are saying other things. Right, next one. Okay. Here we have a, a sort of slightly dark sky with a ray of sun in the middle. Which stands out to you most, the darkness or the sunshine? You see. Next one. When you see this image, what word comes to your mind? Lonely, cold, beautiful, adventure? Next one. Next one. How do you feel on the 21st of June, which is the longest day of the year? Yeah, the middle of summer? Oh, it's all downhill to Christmas. <laughs> I'm actually a mixture of the, the two. So I think, yeah, middle of summer, it's going to be Christmas. Anyway, next one. <laughs> when you go out with friends during the week? Going out during the week, that shows your age, doesn't it? Um, and the night ends late, how do you feel? Happy for having had a nice, fun, unexpected evening, going out, out? Or annoyed at yourself as you'll probably be tired for work the next day? You can analyse that yourself. Next one. Um, do you think this year will be better or worse than last year? <laughs> Next one. Which photo, which photo do you associate with mornings? Coffee at the top? Nice spring, crisp morning, or dark and dreary? Next one. Uh, which statement best reflects you before going on holiday? I keep worrying about things I might have forgotten or things I need to do before I can leave. I can hardly focus on anything. I'm so excited. Which one of you? You're so excited. Who cares? Or you're stressed out. Which statement best matches your opinion of New Year's Eve? It's always a good night, even if you don't do anything terribly exciting. It's unusual. Sorry, it's usually a bit of a letdown. There's always too much build-up. I'm afraid I'm number two. I think New Year's Eve is massively overrated. I've opened my presents. Don't really care about New Year's Eve. Anyway, is that it? Uh, Last one. Okay, last one. What do you see? The black dot or the white page? Is that it? Oh, no. No, let's go back. Sorry. There we are. Um, some things to think about. Why is it that some people are optimists? And why are some people more pessimistic? Why are some people always a bit negative? And some people always a bit positive? Why is it when some people face a challenge, they fight it and they, they overcome it, and other people just 
almost seem to have decided that they're going to lose before they even fight. Why is it we are the way we are? Well, a number of things, I think, that make us the way we are as human beings. Maybe you looked at the black dot and just thought, well, a whole black dot in the middle of that page. Maybe you thought, oh, the white page, how wonderful. Uh, we are conditioned, I think, by various things. So you can put it up now, Laz, if that's all right. I think there are various things that condition us as human beings. And we are going somewhere with this, by the way, in case you're wondering. I think there are a variety of things that make us the way we are. I think one of them is culture. Next one, I'm sorry. One of them is culture. Depending on where you live or how you grow up will define often what sort of adult you become. If you live in a culture that's very fatalistic, you know, with the philosophy of if God had meant you to fly, he would have given you wings, then of course you never bother inventing an aeroplane. If you live in a culture that's very much, well, this is just it, put up with it. If you were supposed to be rich or supposed to be happy or supposed to be healthy, then those things would be easy to get. If you live in that kind of fatalistic culture, and many, many cultures across the world are like that. Um, many parts of the Middle East will, will teach, well, if God wants you to have that, well, then he'll make it possible. But don't go fixing it yourself. That's not honoring to how God is. That's how some people think. Um, there's a big difference between the, the UK and the United States. I'm about to insult most people in the room. I apologize in advance. I've worked with both Americans and the British. And I have to say, the, Brit- the Americans are the world-leading experts in making you feel good and that you can do absolutely anything. And by the time you spend a little bit of time with the Americans, they normally make you feel like you could do anything if you put your mind to it. The British are very concerned that you might become arrogant if they encourage you. And we say this wonderful phrase to each other, it's all right, I'm not going to tell you it was good because you'll get a big head. And what that does, if it takes it to its logical conclusion, you could argue the Americans think too highly of themselves at times, but actually, if we never encourage, we never say, well, you're awesome, you're brilliant, you can do anything, then we never do anything because we think, well, I don't want to punch too much above my weight because I might be seen as arrogant. Actually, ambition isn't necessarily arrogance. Passion isn't necessarily arrogance. Creativity, ideas aren't necessarily arrogance. It depends where you're born um, and your upbringing. Your upbringing as well can affect you. And, and, sorry, just going back to the word culture, that reading that Dean read to us from Luke 13, 10 to 17, that woman was healed on the Sabbath. And what was their response? This woman who had been bound by Satan for 18 years. It wasn't hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? It was, uh, well, it's the Sabbath. That's the wrong day to do it on, isn't it? The culture kept that woman in bondage, you could argue. Jesus broke through the culture that kept her that way. We're conditioned by upbringing as well. If you grow up in a house where your family constantly say to you, you won't amount to anything, you're not very good, you're not the cleverest child, and, you know, actually, don't worry, you're probably just going to get a job in a jam factory or in Tesco's, or that's probably the sort of level you're at, then, of course, you're never going to aim higher. And when things get rough, you'll think, well, that's not me, I can't. Get above those things. That's the kind of thing. If your upbringing can do it. If you grow up in a house with low expectations, of course, when troubles come, you'd assume they're stronger than you. Your past can define us. Our past can condition us. If you've been greatly hurt as a child, of course, you can carry that into adulthood. And then when things get tough again, you think, well, here we go again. I couldn't stop it then. I can't stop it now. Or maybe you've tried to uh, make exciting decisions and live outside the box and do things differently and, and face challenges, but maybe you've failed. And you say to yourself, well, I always fail. When things go wrong, I am always the one that tries but never quite succeeds. Or I'm always the victim. The word always, always this, always that. And it almost becomes like evidence. And when something gets tough, we say, well, I'm not the sort of person that can overcome it. I'm the sort of person that loses. 
I'm the sort of person that thinks the wrong things. And you can almost have that. Or maybe your choices, our choices define us as well. Maybe we're the sort of people that have trusted the wrong thing and continue to trust the wrong things or have the wrong thoughts and we let them define us. Maybe we're the kind of people that like a bit of sympathy. And so when things go wrong, we almost like it. And we like to say to people, I'm having a terrible week. So that people go, how are you? There's nothing wrong with sympathy, but sometimes it can become a bit of an idol in our life as well. So we're looking on the back of all of that about freedom. The next three weeks particularly, but across the year, we split it up across the year. We want to look at freedom in Christ. Because freedom and Christianity go hand in hand. We're supposed to be people who are free. People who live in freedom. It says in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're supposed to be people who are liberated, who are free. We are not chained up, we are not bound up, we are not slaves or prisoners. We are freed men and women. And we're supposed to live in freedom And Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, is going to be our verse that uh, really is just going to keep us on the straight and narrow for these next three weeks. But across the year, we're going to come back to this title, The Freedom in Christ. And I'll read it to you. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. Read it again. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul is, uh, of course, talking to the Christians in Galatia, the Galatian Christians as they're known. And uh, what happened in the first century, the majority of believers, certainly in the first initial years, were Jewish converts. They were Jews who found their Messiah. Um, That's what Christianity is, Judaism that's found its Messiah. And they were followers of the, the way, the followers of the King of Kings, followers of the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so what happened when Jesus came was all that Old Testament ritual was superseded by his death and resurrection and faith in him. So there was no more need to go to the temple, no more need to be circumcised, no more need to uh, adhere to special ritualistic days and practices. That had all been fulfilled in Christ. It was now just about faith in Jesus. And many of those who hadn't converted to Christianity, those Jews who watched their brothers and sisters following Jesus, couldn't handle it. And what was happening in the Galatian churches, these Judaizers, as they were called, were coming into the church community. You must always be careful of what comes into God's community. That's why you should know your Bible, so that when someone says something incorrect, you can say, hang on a minute, that's not biblical. And we keep ourselves pure that way. But they came in and they were saying to these Christians, it's all very well and good believing in Jesus, but you're Jews and you ought to get circumcised and you ought to honour the Sabbath and you ought to do this and you ought to do that. They were preaching a Christianity plus. But what Paul says to these Jewish people, these Jewish Christians, is if you go back to being circumcised, you're just putting yourself back under the law that Christ came to free you from. He describes the law earlier on in Galatians as like a schoolmaster. Uh, keeping them locked and he said Christ broke you out of the law so don't go back to that yoke of slavery that Jesus set you free but that idea of freedom is much broader than the Old Testament law it's for freedom that Christ has set us free from our guilt yet sometimes we want to go back to it and Jesus says stand firm stand firm and don't go back to the yoke of slavery Jesus came to set us free from our sin that breaks our relationship with God and puts us under his wrath in the wrong kingdom Stand firm and don't go back to that yoke of slavery. We've been broken free from the fear of death. Hebrews talks to people being enslaved by the fear of death. We've been set free from that as Christians. And we're not supposed to go back to that. 
Because that's the yoke of slavery that Christ set us free from. Past hurts and mistakes are all things that we've been set free from in Christ. Freedom is our preserve as Christians. Freedom is our privilege. Freedom is meant to be our daily reality. And it's a powerful thing because once a Christian knows he or she is free in Christ, then they begin to not fear man at all. Only honouring God. So it doesn't matter what people do to their earthly bodies because their heart and their hope is set on God. I think the most wonderful image of freedom in Christ is found in Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 26. Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they've been preaching the gospel. They've been arrested by the authorities. They've been thrown into prison. And this is a literal prison in actual events, but this prison could be an analogy, couldn't it? of maybe guilt in your life or pains in your life. And the chains that they've been bound on could be the chains that are going on up here or in here. Chains come in all shapes and sizes. And as they're thrown into prison, the most remarkable thing happens in verse 22 of chapter 16 in the book of Acts. It says, I'll read just slightly before. It says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. How awesome is that? I love it. Um, And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And then the jailer wakes up and is about to kill himself. But they say, no, they stayed where they were. But I think that's the most wonderful analogy of Christian freedom. Because they're free up here and in here. It doesn't matter how many doors or how many inner cells or how many chains have bound them up in their actual life, in their spirit. They know the freedom in Christ. And I wonder this morning if you know the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've been set free from your sin and from your hurt and from your guilt and from your pain. The actual chains may still be wrapped around because we have to bear the situations we're in. But do you know the freedom in Christ that means you can sing hymns of praise even in the darkest cell that the world has thrown you in? But there's a problem, isn't there? Because we talk so easily about freedom and Christians being free, yet so many Christians and non-Christians do not feel free. And that's what this series of talks is about, how to feel free, how to be free in Christ regardless of what it is. And this morning, our title is very simply, Choose to believe, believe the Truth. How can I be free in Christ? You've got to choose what you believe. You've got to choose to believe the truths that God has revealed. The only way to be free is to listen to the voice of God and believe Him over everybody else. And we'll look at a very, very quickly a story in the book of Numbers. Um, if you've got Numbers open, it's good to, good to have it open. Chapter 13 of the book of Numbers. Um, is the story of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, were held captive in Egypt for about 450 years. Moses was risen up, wasn't he? And after 10 plagues, God's people escaped Egypt. And they went through the Red Sea. The sea parted. Um, Pharaoh's armies were defeated miraculously. And they go across the desert. They would get the Ten Commandments. It's the most wonderful thing. And they get, after a short journey, to the edge of the promised land. God had been saying to them, I'm going to set you free from Egypt, and you're going to be taken to Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they get to this promised land. God talked about establishing them, them being a nation of priests, being his people, as many as the uh, sand on the seashore. 
spreading and blessing the entire world. So they escape their captivity and their pain and their torture, and they walk all this way, not actually that far, and they get to the edge of the promised land. And it's here that is their defining moment. And many of you this morning will be on the edge of a promised land, the edge of all that God's calling you to be. And you have a very important decision to make in your heart about how you respond to the challenges going forward that God is calling you to fight. As they are on the edge of this promised land, God has promised them it. He's promised that when they get there, he'll provide for them. And there's great potential when they enter this promised land. They're going to have to fight some enemies. That's part of the challenge ahead. But when they fight them and defeat them, it's going to be their land. And God is going to use this uh, family nation to bless the entire world. Moses sends out 12 spies, one from each tribe. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Um, From verse 3 to 15 of chapter 13 in Numbers. He sends out these 12 spies and they go off to Canaan and have a good look round. And after a short time, they come back to Moses and they give him a report. And it's this report and the response to it that's going to shape the next 40 years of Israel's history. And how they respond to the challenges in Canaan are going to actually mess up the next 40 years of their life. Don't make the wrong choice when God offers you freedom and then live outside of it for 40 years or even 10, or even 40 minutes, because it's not worth it. But here they stand, they come back, and they give this report to Moses. It says, They came back to Moses and Aaron, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh, in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them, to the whole assembly, and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak, and the Amalekites lived in the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. And then Canaan silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are, and they will, and, and they spread this report among the Israelites. Sorry, spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. And they said, "The land we explored devours those living in it, and all the people we saw there are of great size." We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, who come from Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. So they come back, having spied out the land. The land that God has already said is theirs in name they just have to go and take in his power and they come back and they say don't bother us too hard 12 spies come back two joseph and caleb joseph is israel's next leader both say we can do it let's get in there and do it god's with us the other 10 say no no no. they're too big the inhabitants are too big and too scary and there are three things that are true um, as they stand on the edge of the promised land the first thing that's true is that canaan is great Canaan is worth having. Canaan is everything God has promised it will be. The second thing that's true is that the inhabitants of Canaan are big. They are big and they are scary and anyone in their right mind wouldn't take them on. The third thing that's true in this is that God is on the side of Israel. Three things are true. Canaan is worth fighting for. The inhabitants are large, but God is on Israel's side. And these 12 spies uh, make a series of choices in those few verses I've just read about how they approach the challenge of those inhabitants of the promised land. 
and I'm going to go through them now, where I think they went wrong. Because they spread that report, and Israel said, let's not bother. 40 years, God said, you can't come in because you've been disobedient. 40 years, a whole generation had to go until only Joshua and Caleb were left. 40 years, because they didn't have the courage and the faith to fight for what God said was rightfully there. So where did they go wrong? Well, here's a couple of things. You may or may not be able to see them. But the first thing they had wrong was they had a wrong focus. You see, 10 of those spies only saw number two on that list. Remember, Canaan was great, the inhabitants were big, God was on Israel's side. All those ten could see was that the inhabitants were big. That's all they could think about. The challenge is too great. The two, Joshua and Caleb, saw number two in light of one and three. They saw the size of their inhabitants of that land who had to be conquered in light of the fact that it was worth fighting for and that God was on their side. Isn't that really where it all goes wrong for every single one of us? Isn't that really where our freedom is robbed from us? We look at a challenge. Maybe God wants you to deal with an addiction or something else or forgiveness of a family member that's hurt you years ago and you think, I can't, it's too big, it's too painful and it's too strong. You're only seeing number two. But God has said that if you forgive, then then you're set free. God has said, I'm with you to the end of the age. You're not seeing number one and number three. You're not seeing number two in light of the power and the goodness and the promises of God. Isn't that where it goes wrong? That we focus on the issue in front of us and not the power of an eternal God who can raise his son from the dead and who can speak life into existence. Don't we just see the problem, but don't see it framed by the goodness and the power and the graciousness and the promises of our God. That's where they went wrong. All those ten could see were the size of the people they had to fight, not God. Second thing they went wrong was in their definition. Sorry, got the next one, sorry. Their definition. You see, the ten were defined by their captivity. 450 years in Egypt, they had a terrible time escaping. It was awful. The Egyptians treated them terribly. They were defined by that captivity. As they left, that's all they could think about. This is so bad. Let's go back. Almost Stockholm Syndrome. They almost fell in love with Egypt. Every time it went wrong, they would say, let's go back to Egypt. It was easier. At least we had some food at regular times. But the two, Caleb and Joshua, were defined not by their captivity, but by the fact of their rescue from captivity. Shouldn't that fire you up more than the fact that you were held captive in the first place? Shouldn't you be more excited by the fact that you escaped it and you had the, the strength in God to walk out of that prison cell once and for all rather than focus on the fact you were in it in the first place? Romans 8 tells us that we're more than conquerors through Christ. Height nor depth, life or death, demons or angels, nothing can come against us because we're Jesus' people. And actually... Their past defined them. And actually, often our past can be used as a reason to be static about the present. I was trapped, and that's me. Don't focus on what you were. Focus on what you are now. If you've been set free, then you're no longer a slave. You're no longer a victim. You're no longer weak. You're strong. You're free. You're Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, all those words are yours, even if you don't believe it. You are no longer in a prison. But don't be defined by the prison you were once in. Be defined by the rescue. Think of Jesus on the cross, nailed to it for you, so you could walk out of darkness into light. They were defined by their captivity. The two were defined by their rescue. 
They were controlled. They were controlled by fear. Ten of them were controlled by fear. You can just see them, beads of sweat coming down the side of their faces on their nose like that, dripping down. Oh, they're massive. This is going to hurt. There's a mistake. Let's not go in there. But the two are defined and controlled by their faith. Come on. We can do it. You can almost feel Caleb getting his sword. Come on, then let's go. And the ten are like, oh, it's too difficult. It's too scary. I don't like being scared. I'm going to hide in my tent because that will protect you. Controlled by their faith, not controlled by their fear. Think of uh, David when he fought Goliath. When Goliath comes up, all nine foot of him with his massive sword that was as long as a tree trunk, says, yeah, who are you, this little boy? Like, well, my dog, you come at me with sticks? What does David say? <gasps> Don't punch me in the face, because I'm quite rugged and handsome. No, he gets his five stones and he says, yeah, how can I come against you in the name of the Lord? And he runs at him. We read in the Bible. Walk towards him gingerly, trying to get a, a kind of little hit on the, and hope for the best. He sprints at him because he's got God on his side. And I dare you try and defy me by fear. Shh. And he uses his own sword to chop his head off, but that's a bit gr- gruesome. I'll say that for another day. But controlled by his faith, and at the end of David's life, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 30, as he sings his last song before he dies, I love the fact that he says, With my God's help, I can scale a wall. Here's an old man, wrinkled and at the end of his life, can barely stand up. And he says, I'll read it to you actually, in verse 30. With your help, Lord, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. And this little old man in his bed who could barely stand, could not even stand. But his faith said, I can do anything if God wants me to, even at this fragile state. That's us. That's us. That's you and me. That's you and me every single day of our lives. Don't be controlled by fear, be controlled by faith. When your fear says to you, oh no, you can't, that's not you. You say, sharp. Shush in the name of Jesus. How dare you? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to? You're talking to an ambassador of Christ, a son of the living God, a daughter of God. You tell me I should be frightened. You should be frightened because I'm a person of faith. And with my God, I can scale a walk and charge an army. I'm going to charge an army, starting with you. So you better run, fear. That's how we should approach life. A bit of fight. Second thing, the next thing they got wrong was they had their wrong perspective. The ten spies who said we shouldn't do it thought God was small compared to the task. But the two who saw those, uh, those people in the land saw the task small compared to God. It all comes down to how big your view of God is. If your view of God is small, that he's just the, the person that sometimes answers some of our prayers, then of course it's going to be doomed for failure. But thank goodness that faith the size of mustard seed moves mountains. Sometimes I've only got a little bit, but even that's enough because it's not about what you think, it's about who you believe in. They thought God was too small for the task, but I believe in a God who parts waves. How could they think that when they just crossed an ocean, when it was like that, and the water? How could you possibly think God's not up for the task when God's done that? And they've seen lightning on top of a mountain, he's spoken, they've felt the rumble of his voice, and yet when they come to their first real challenge, I don't think God's up for this challenge. Why is he not up for this challenge, but he's up for all the others? Of course he's up for this challenge. You're not up for this challenge, except the two out of the ten. Reliance is our next word um, there. The ten are ultimately trusting in their own strength. We can't do it. The two trusted like David in the strength of God. And finally, choice. The ten believed the lie, but the inhabitants were superior to them. The two 
Joshua and Caleb believe the truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery.